0: Hey friend, I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you're enjoying this spooky season. We're almost to the end of it, unfortunately, but that just means Christmas is going to be closer, and I do love Christmas just as much as I love Halloween, so I hope you're enjoying the season. Um, I did want to start this episode off by apologizing for the lack of new episodes. We're almost at the end of October, and I haven't shared shit, and I'm really, really sorry, you guys. The episode that I was originally planning for the third one, like, it became super overwhelming with the information I was finding and, I mean, the case is unsolved, so there's just so much in forming ideas and comprehension of the case, I guess you could say, because it's unsolved. And I just started doing this, technically, and it was a lot for me to handle. And I just didn't even know where to begin when forming up my thoughts on the case with all the information I had at my hands. So I decided to put it on the back burner for now and I will resume it once I've gotten the hang of this whole podcasting thing. Um, But for now, I'm just going to put that on the back burner and then I will get back to it when I feel like I'm better at this, I guess you could say so. Hopefully that's soon because the case is really interesting and I think you guys would love it. But for now, we're going to be talking about something else. Again, I'm really sorry and I hope today's episode can make up for it at least a little bit. Also, I do have information about the second episode that was shared with me from my boyfriend's best friend, Gabe, who is a lawyer. I asked for feedback from somebody in law on my understanding of the Fry Test and he said that my interpretation was close but not quite complete. He said the general scientific community in whatever field it is that's in question they must accept the method in question as commonly used and this is known as the fry test so it makes sense as to why John Douglas could be used as an expert in the case of Stephen Pinnell. John Douglas's method of profiling was accepted and was able to be used in court because it is accepted by the entire community. So thank you for that info, Gabe, and congrats on your new job. I hope you're liking it so far, and your office is super tight. <laughs> Anyways, we're currently almost at the end of spooky season, like I said, unfortunately, but I figured we could change things up a bit for this episode and look at something that's not technically a crime, but still very cruel and unusual, and in the end, of go sleep it. For me, I personally believe that when the world of our reality, yours and mine, and the world beyond ours collide, there seems to be a common thread, which is more often than not mistreated or murdered people who haven't been able to get to their final resting place. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and what happened behind the walls of this seemingly beautiful asylum for the mentally ill, the aftermath of the harrowing conditions this facility's patients had to endure, and the spirits of those who are still dwelling in the hallways of this haunted asylum. My name is Lauren, and you're listening to A Nightmare on Their Street. So, we begin with the Virginia General Assembly, which is just a body for the commonwealth of West Virginia, and they did approve the construction of the asylum in the early 1850s, and is still this asylum is still the largest hand-cut stone building in the United States, and it is said to be the largest in North America. There's even arguments that it's the second largest in the entire world. Architect Richard Snowden Andrew was hired to prepare drawings for the building and then he submitted them to a Dr. Thomas Kirkbride, who was the Philadelphia Hospital Superintendent. The Board of Directors, who also submitted their preliminary plans to Dr. Francis T. Tribbling, the Superintendent of Virginia's Western Lunatic Asylum in Staunton. Both doctors vehemently approved of these plans and wanted construction to start like literally immediately. So the asylum was built between the years 1858 and 1881 along the banks of the West Fork of the Monongalia River in Central Virginia with a floor space of about nine acres under three and a half acres of roof. So it had multiple floors and wings that made up the building and it's resting on a total of about 300 acres of land. The initial plan for the building seemed well-intentioned, and idyllic for patients living with mental illness. 50 acres of the land would be preserved as a pleasure ground for the patients, and several acres of woodland would be provided as a place with wonderful shade for the patients to peacefully relax. According to Western Virginia University research by Kim Jacks, at this time, the United States asserted that mental illness could be cured by removing the afflicted person from the environment that drove him mad by providing him with peace and quiet. The asylum was built to hold 250 patients and Dr. Thomas Kirkbride intended for the building to have like long wings that would allow for sunlight and fresh air to move throughout the building, but also allow patients to have privacy in order to get that peace and quiet, he said would help the patients. I mean, in theory, that sounds like a nice suitable place For people who needed help, I mean, who doesn't want to, like, hang out in the woods with nice air, you know? Maybe not. That actually sounds kind of creepy. I don't know why I said that. West Virginia didn't even become a state until 1863, so opening this facility was a way to help establish this new state and relieve some of the crowding in the other two hospitals within the area. I'm drinking a beer right now, just to, I haven't recorded in a while, so I need to like loosen up a bit, I don't have to get up early tomorrow, because my classes don't start till later, so I'm having a couple of beers, so if you're listening to this during the evening, crack a beer with me, so we can have one together. Ah. So, September of 1858 came around, and now just to really start it off, the hospital was assembled and built by prisoners and slave laborers. The inmate crew were part of the Western Penitentiary of Staunton, and in the beginning of 1859, Governor Alexander Wise requested that more prisoners be transferred in order to get the construction done even quicker. A local news reporter released an article with the headline, and I quote, Stampede of Negro Convicts, end quote, in April of 1859 and said that the convicted workers escaped the asylum where they were being held against their will and said that they were able to escape because they did convince the guards that they, quote, had urgent necessities outside the prison and he thoughtlessly allowed them to go out, supposing they would return, end quote. The men that had escaped ventured into unknown territory. I mean, this is a seriously heavily wooded area, and they did become lost and separated from one another, and unfortunately, they were all recaptured within just a few days. Construction could not continue for a period of time in 1861 because the Civil War broke out while they were building the asylum, and it wasn't really on the forefront of anybody's mind until their Wasn't so much conflict. They were still continually building it. It just wasn't so much because I mean There was a war going on obviously So during this time the surrounding grounds of the site were used as Camp Tyler for the Union The Union was part of the North during this time and was governed by President Abraham Lincoln The southern wing of the asylum was completed during this time. So the Union used it as barracks So in 1862 and 1863, the Confederates raided the building, which resulted in the removal of the Union. Because the Confederates who raided the asylum were there for two years, they stripped the asylum of pretty much everything that was intended for the patients when the facility were to open. And during this time, West Virginia became a state, and the hospital was renamed as the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. While the Confederates were holed up in the asylum, they, like I said, they literally stole everything that was food, clothing, bedding, everything was stolen. A short while after the Confederates left and the construction of the asylum was nearing completeness, October of 1864 brought in the first wave of patients. The first patient to ever be admitted to the asylum was a housewife. Her illness was domestic trouble. I was reading a Reddit thread and somebody who had gone on tour of this place said that the tour guide implied that women were often sent to asylums by their husbands in order for the husbands to, like, start a new life and start new relationships with other women, which was really, really sad. In the logbook that the facility used, the first patient's reasons for admittance were recorded and they were absolutely ridiculous, like, and it would not normally constitute somebody be, to be put in this place. The reasons listed were things like congestion of the brain. I don't even know what that is. Is that like brain fog? I get that all the time. Seduction, novel reading, grief, and feebleness of intellect. Um, but when new patients would be brought to the asylum, there was a placard titled, quote, Reasons for Admission at the hospital giving a list of reasons they could be brought in. People were admitted for the strangest things. They were admitted for things like menopause, ill treatment of husband, again, men trying to get rid of their wives, imaginary female trouble, hard study, being lazy, masturbation, female disease. I don't even What's a female disease? I don't even know what that is. And tuberculosis, mental health and mental illness was not understood at this point in time, arguably by any means, and a lot of people, I think, personally, that mental illness and mental health still isn't even completely understood to this day. So, but lack of understanding brought in a lot of people who did not belong there. A doctor named Turner Smith of Fulton State Hospital in Missouri had written about masturbation and how people who masturbate are mentally ill. He said, quote, I very much fear this habit, with all its withering influence upon mind and body, prevails among the young of both sexes to an alarming extent. The expenditure and exhaustion of nerve power, resulting from frequent repetition of this habit, and the constant excitation to which the brain is thus exposed, slowly and permanently damage the delicate nerve cells. It's the supreme centers of life. And so wreck the unfortunate subjects physically and mentally as renders them among the saddest of the hopeless. (laughs) First off, people's bodies don't exist to just make babies. Uh, People have nerve endings down there for pleasure. And isn't it like so weird that people touching like their own goods... Was enough to warrant a trip to the asylum? Like, did these people go to their doctor and say, like, dude, I can't stop touching, like, my wiener. I need help. Or did they, like, just assume that they, like, did the doctors just assume they couldn't stop touching themselves? How did that conversation even happen? Or how how did someone even find out that they were masturbating? Like, did a family member catch them and then commit them to the asylum? It makes no sense. I need answers here. Maybe, maybe patients confided in their own doctors that they masturbate. Anyways, places like this were basically a dumping ground for the people who others didn't want to deal with or take care of. And some asylums would even pay people to drop off patients to them, even if the person wasn't suffering from any mental illness or physical ailments. From the beginning of it, the asylum was meant to be a self-sufficient place for 250 patients where they could grow their own food, they had dairy animals, a reservoir for needed water supply, and a coal mine was even nearby that supplied fuel for heat needed during the winter because West Virginia gets cold as frick. The clock tower that loomed over the grounds was erected in 1871 and stood at 200 feet tall, and the four floors that made up the base of the tower was made for the main offices, personnel to live there, and a large ballroom. I don't know why they would need a ballroom or what it was used for. Maybe like activities. They didn't I never found anything about why they needed a ballroom, but maybe maybe it's for arts and crafts or something. I don't know. 2 years later in 1873, separate rooms were completed for black patients. As we all should know, segregation was very much alive during this time, and even though some black patients were in need of mental health care, They were still restricted from their white counterparts. Construction to finish the entire asylum continued on until 1881 and costed the builders $725,000, which is about $19.5 million today. Once construction was completed, there were more than like 700 patients in the building, which was meant to only hold 250. The walls in the building were two and a half feet thick, These thick walls absorbed the sounds so nobody on the outside could hear what was happening within them. During this time, I'm sure you all know about at least one brutal and cruel ways doctors thought that they could heal people or even test new procedures, but these tactics don't stop at what we all know as lobotomies. Doctors would put patients through a procedure called bloodletting. It was believed that it could be used to treat, like, diabetes, herpes, insanity, smallpox, TB, and, like, a bajillion other diseases. Bloodletting was a procedure approved and recommended by a physician, but was completed by a barber. Yes, a barber, that dude that gives you that super nice fade, Back in the day, he was shaving your beard and, like, cutting your hair, but he was also pulling out your friend's teeth or chopping off your gangrene limbs. These men were known as barber surgeons, but would perform bloodletting procedures and the procedures I mentioned before. That's why that red and white striped pole was used, and it's even used today. I'm sure you've seen it at the barber shop, but it was used in a different context, sort of. The striped poles were specifically created for these barbershops to signify their craft. The red stripe represents the blood from the wound and the white represents the bandage that would cover that said wound. So the doctor would refer you to a barber, then the barber would do any of the bloodletting procedures, some of them not as brutal as others but still not very effective, basically useless. (laughs) Using leeches on the skin is a form of bloodletting and that's still used in medicine today. One of the techniques used back in the day was called phlebotomy, and phlebotomy is still done today. When you go get your blood drawn to go get labs done, it's a phlebotomist doing it. Or a method called venesection, which I think in Latin or Greek or something means um, something like letting the blood breathe, and it was where blood would be drawn from one or multiple larger veins. Or they would use a method called arteriotomy, where an artery was punctured in the temples of your skull. Another method was known as scarification, where the blood vessels that are superficial to your skin or like near the surface area were opened with a syringe or a spring-loaded lance. Once the blood was drawn out with like a glass cup that had hot air inside, it created a vacuum. Today, you'll see like athletes doing this and other people using this cu- uh, cupping technique, which is essentially the same thing, but their skin is closed. But their skin is closed, and the blood doesn't escape, so it just gets raised to the surface. With scarification cupping is done on an open wound, so it basically just like bleeds you dry. The machine used during scarification was called a scarificator where the spring-loaded gears snap the blades through slits on this machine and it's kind of like in a it's a rectangle and these blades move in a circular motion like those giant like farming rotary blade tractors but they're small and they're for your arms <laughs> even our first president george washington he even asked for bloodletting to cure his sore throat or like throat infection that he got from weather exposure and this he had this done for like well over 10 hours medical staff withdrew 3.75 liters of blood and based on his weight and height he maybe had about seven liters of blood and you're more than likely gonna die if you lose 40 percent of your blood and with my calculations He may have lost about 53% of his total blood volume, so you're going to die, but that's beside the point. So that technique was used on patients, but they also might have had to endure insulin coma therapy or insulin shock therapy. This method wasn't introduced into hospitals until after 1900 when the procedure was founded in 1927. This treatment consisted of repeated large, like, huge doses of insulin that would bring patients into comas on a daily basis for weeks or months at a time. It's also been documented that courses of insulin administration went on for up to two years on just one single patient. Two years. There wasn't a specific guideline for this procedure, so most hospitals did what they figured was best for this treatment. I'm putting my fingers up in quotations best for treatment Um, because putting someone into a coma with a shit ton of insulin is not, not right. The comas lasted about an hour at a time. And during this time, some patients would experience seizures, which some facilities and many physicians across the United States believed was actually beneficial to the patient. And some would even put the patient through shock therapy or drug therapy while they were in a comatose state. This was mostly used for schizophrenia in the 1940s and 50s, and was the most commonly used procedure during the beginning of the 20th century. It was then only replaced by drug therapy or different convulsive therapy in the 1960s, which we will get into in a bit. In 1913, the name of the hospital was changed to Weston State Hospital, when the mentality of the hospital had kind of changed from a rehabilitation to a be a maintaining facility where they'd work to keep the patients the same rather than work to get them better or make them worse. They kind of would just maintain the patients at their normal status or in their normal state. And this only increased the amount of overcrowding in the asylum. Many wards were developed and immediately filled as time went on. In 1930, a tuberculosis ward was even built. Dude, I just found out that my mom's dad had tuberculosis like he was in a hospital in a hospital with like other TB patients and like he could have died it seems like so long ago but like that was my grandpa he was in a TB ward anyways that's beside the point so over time patients had set fires to different areas of the asylum but the largest was set by an 18 year old male in October of 1935 where the entire fourth floor of the hospital was set on fire And fortunately, nobody did die, and it only lasted about four hours, but $155,000 had to be used to fix the wing. Three years later, 1,661 patients lived there. That's a 664% increase of capacity than they had originally built the facility for. And in 1949, they had 1,800 patients. That's a 720% increase. With such like an insanely high occupation, you can imagine the filth that ravaged these halls. Patients here were even given laxatives to, quote, purge the system, tonics to restore strength, and quiet and various drugs to induce sleep. If through the temporary administration of alcoholic beverages, the patient can be induced to remember his misery no more, we consider the treatment justifiable, in quote. So, patients were given laxatives, probably accidentally shitting their pants on a regular basis, and then on top of laxatives, they were given alcohol. I don't know about you, and this might be TMI, but I drink alcohol, obviously. I'm having a beer right now, but and beer is my drink of choice. But alcohol poops are a thing, and if you drink, I'm sure you've experienced it, Now, imagine the alcohol poops tied in with a laxative. It would be impossible not to shit your pants. I'm sure the hospital was far from sanitary at this point with people constantly having, like, uncontrollable bowel movements. The Charleston Gazette, which is a local newspaper, had reported on the living conditions of these patients and said the patients were trapped in tiny rooms, there was no heating in Virginia's cold winters, and living in their own filth, And there was literal feces smeared on the walls. So people were shitting everywhere. There was poop everywhere. Another method um, for patients who were considered easily excitable, they were placed in ice baths where a patient would be submerged from their neck down in ice-cold water. This was considered hydrotherapy, and patients were placed in these baths in a hammock that was like suspended in the ice-cold bath water. And sometimes the patients would stay there for hours or days, and these patients would be forced to wear bandages over their eyes and ears because all of these actions tied together would cause like fatigue without hurting the mind, and quote, it stimulated excru- excretory functions of the skin and kidneys. Now, I'm not a licensed physician, but I don't think covering your eyes and ears while sitting in ice water is makes your skin and kidneys function better. But anyways, if that didn't work, wet or dry packs would be used on the naked body of patients. So outside of the water, they'd have blankets soaked in freezing water wrapped around their body like a mummy, like super tight on their skin, and a cold pack on their head. They they would basically like induce hypothermia, I feel like. If a dry pack was used, they'd just be wrapped in a blanket for like one to three hours. Probably tightly bound, which sounds claustrophobic, and I would probably throw up. Another method of treatment that hospital staff used was seclusion cells and confinement cribs. I mean, we all know what a seclusion cell is and what it can do to people, and it's no bueno. Confinement cribs were these like long and narrow cribs that were only like 15 to 30 inches high, Tall or high, whatever, and it looks kind of like a bathtub with like thick pieces of fabric, like the you know the fabric from straight jackets. Well, they would have it strapped down on the top of these bathtub things, and only the person's head sticks out. So these people weren't allowed to stand. They weren't allowed to sit normally or move. They were literally like strapped in this weird bathtub thing. They probably were like all suffering from like festering, disgusting sores all over their body because they couldn't move. So, if a patient weren't already crazy, I would imagine being in a place like this will start to make you feel like you are because I sure as hell would go crazy. And if you even hinted at a complaint or rebelled against what was happening to you, you'd end up in solitary confinement. I mean, I feel like I would have started acting up because I wouldn't be able to take it anymore. I'd be so pissed. Like, you know that feeling of being so helpless and you get so pissed off? It's like the worst feeling, like, no one's listening. No one understands what you're going through and, like, physically hurting you. Like, that's, I'd be so mad. So, with this new era coming around where certain therapies were no longer being used, uh, new ones were introduced, as well as the use of new antipsychotic drugs. In 1950, a psychology department had been formed here where one psychologist had examined 147 patients with electroshock treatments given daily which resulted in thousands of treatments being given. One person had even died from these treatments because of an underlying cardiac condition. These treatments were a cheaper and a more effective way to make a patient convulse, which we said earlier that seizures were thought to be a great way to heal patients with a mental illness. And now we know that's not true, and repeated seizures can actually cause brain damage or injury. Uh, These patients would begin to lose higher cognitive processes and emotions that caused fantasies, delusions, and paranoia. The patients who had initially came in for schizophrenia treatment, they, according to these physicians, I don't know how true it is, but they did have their symptoms decline, but so did their overall mental functioning. Now, if all else failed, if all the treatments were given to you and it all didn't work, you were getting a lobotomy. The lobotomy was brought into American hospitals in 1936, dude, that wasn't even a hundred years ago. So between 1936 and sometime in the 1950s, 70 transorbital lobotomies were performed at this asylum. And in the entire United States in the year of 1945, 150 lobotomies were performed. And within a four-year span, that number jumped to 5,000 lobotomies that were performed across the states. 228 of those were done by one doctor in 1952 in the state of West Virginia. You know, I'm surprised they didn't have barbers performing lobotomies. Kind of seemed like their forte. There were different kinds of lobotomies. The first was a prefrontal lobotomy where holes were drilled in the front side of the skull and the surgeon would, like, take alcohol and insert the alcohol into the drilled holes which would cause the cells of the brain to die or they just cut nerve fibers. But you know, then drilling the skull took too much time. So they thought, hey, why don't we think of a way to crank through this procedure faster so we could get more of them done? That was when the transorbital lobotomy was introduced. To perform a transorbital lobotomy, a single or double pronged device was used and crudely shoved through the orbital socket of the eye. So underneath their upper eyelid. If you like grab your upper eyelid and like pull it away from your eye like your eyeball there's like that gap between your eyeball and your eyelid that's where they'd stick the prong and push it straight into your brain for this hospital in particular I didn't find any evidence that lobotomies were um performed scrambly back in the day sometimes doctors would get that pick and kind of when they would shove it in there they would like scramble your brain like eggs But at this asylum, I didn't find any documentation that they would do that. Um, It was just kind of a single sharp blow to your brain. Either way, these lobotomies were performed to sever neural connections from the frontal brain, which we now know is used for cognitive control and working memory, organization, any kind of future planning, uh, understanding consequences of one's own actions and focus so people who would actually be released from the hospital after having a lobotomy done um they couldn't really function like normal people it would it would have been like taking your kids to school in the morning and then forgetting that you need to pick them up in the afternoon because you have no understanding of future planning you you physically cannot plan to do something later These doctors claim that the lobotomies relieve depression, anxiety, delusions, panic, suicidal thoughts, and many other disturbances. Imagine going to your doctor, and I mean, I've been asked this plenty of times, but you know how they ask if you've been depressed lately or if you've had suicidal thoughts? Now imagine saying yes, and they're instantly like, to the lobotomy surgeon, we need to fix this you'll be alright, we're just gonna stick this thing in your brain and, like, just, you know, hope it all works out. That's scary. I don't understand how people, like, would open up to their physicians. Like, I wouldn't tell anybody anything. Like, I would just suffer in silence. In the book Psychosurgery, Drs. Freeman and Dr. Watts reported that 80% of the 623 patients that they performed lobotomies on in their careers up until 1950 including some with asylum we're discussing, they should expect to be able to get home to their families and function like normal members of society. More than likely, it probably didn't happen very often. And some patients would end up unable to care for themselves. They would be like completely blank. They would become disinterested or they would even be in distress. And when a patient was in distress, electroshock therapy would be administered or they would just stab your brain again literally the goal of this was to have a quiet blank patient they were considered good outcomes after a lobotomy if you've never seen the movie the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest you should watch it I like highly recommend it it was originally a book published in 1962 and then they made it into a movie with Jack Nicholson who's a phenomenal actor in 1975 where he gets transferred from a prison to a mental institution because he was faking a mental illness He thought life would be better in the ward. Well, he was wrong, and he had to live under the same roof as Nurse Ratched. Once you watch the movie, you're going to go through life understanding more Nurse Ratched, like, pop culture references, because there's a lot of them. Like, they're in songs, they're in a bajillion movies. There's even the Netflix original called Ratched. Like, I haven't watched it. I've been meaning to watch it. It's with the, I forget her name. She's, like, one of the main ladies in American Horror Story. I can't remember her name but she plays Nurse Ratched in Ratched and I really want to watch it maybe I'll get around to it oh by the way like I said I watch scary movies during Halloween well me and my boyfriend just watched a Halloween movie which isn't scary but if you like a good funny movie there's an Adam Sandler movie it's on Netflix it's called Hubie Halloween and it's super cute it's a really good movie so if you like Halloween and you need a good laugh, I would recommend watching it. It's a good movie. Anyways, both of those movies are really good, and I think The One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest paints a pretty good picture of what you and I are looking at today. Anyways, um, with so many unsuccessful patient outcomes, why were doctors still performing lobotomies on patients, you ask? The answer is money. Isn't it always money? Anytime someone has disregard for human life, it's money. Um, What was one of the sources of funding to research said lobotomies, you ask? None other than Rockefeller Foundation. There's an actual annual report from Rockefeller Foundation from 1953 that is on the internet, and I found it where the Rockefeller Foundation donated $23,400 to the University of London to further the research of lobotomies, and the Neuropsychiatric Research Center in Wales wanted to further the study of neurochemical phenomenon and biochemical changes that cause contrasting psychological states when a patient is convulsing and under anesthesia. Rockefeller gave them $26,400 this was happening all over in the world not just in our backyards this was everywhere and this was happening from one of the richest families in the history of the United States and they still are today they're like third in the United States richest families they were just handing over money to doctors and researchers to keep testing out lobotomies and other procedures on patients and they were eating that shit up dude eating it up if you know me You know science and development is near and dear to me. I love science. It is one of my greatest joys, but we got to where we are today by experimenting on people who were sick and they just wanted to get better. We've learned a lot and we've gained a lot to develop as a society, but this has been at the expense of an actual person, an actual human being. People died from hemorrhaging from this procedure, from lobotomies, or became blind or paralyzed. This wasn't even that long ago. But in the 1950s, the population of the asylum jumped to 2,400 patients. That's a 600-patient intake over the course of a few years. With such a like large amount of people coming through the doors and an understaffed asylum, shit got real bad real fast in the 1900s in this place. Patients were murdering each other, dying of suicide, or lacked all ability to care for oneself. So like I said, patients shitting themselves, yeah, well, no one was wiping their ass. So, you know, they just got like all kinds of shit wrong. A 38-year-old female patient had died in 1927 when she was found restrained in a wet pack. She had bruises on her shoulders, arms, back, and lower limbs. And when her family saw the condition of her body after she died, they questioned what was actually going on in this facility. The day before she was transported to this facility from a different one, she was given eight doses of morphine. Doctors did consider her an excitable patient, and when she arrived, they put her in sleeves that only allowed her like arms and hands and feet to move in a foot in one direction. Stockings were tied around her ankles and another one tied between her feet, and they also tied her to the foot of the bed. And then a sheet was placed over her abdomen that basically, like, strapped her down, and then it was brought around the side railing, and it basically tied her to the bed. After testimonies given in court, it was concluded that the hospital and superintendent were not guilty of neglect or acts contributing to her death because it's possible that the morphine the other facility gave to her affected her heart. One patient had attempted to hang himself from the ceiling with a bedsheet, but the attempt failed, so two other males took that man and placed his head underneath the bed frame, and the two other patients repeatedly jumped on it until the bed frame was touching the floor, crushing his skull. Another patient in Ward 2 was murdered by another patient from being stabbed 17 times. Staff members were assaulted violently and even multiple female staff members were raped by patients while they were working. One night, a nurse went missing and nobody knew where she went. The police department got involved and they didn't find anything. But if they had looked a little harder, things might have been different. Two months later, her body was found decomposing at the bottom of an unused stairwell. When things got so bad and out of control, a lot of these patients were kept in cages like animals while in another time, two patients had died by suicide from hanging themselves from curtain rods. In one of the newer facilities later on, a patient had ripped out one of the metal towel racks off the wall in the restroom, he broke the rod, and then he slit his own throat with the metal. Things did start to improve later on as articles were written in the newspaper about this place, and the public was actually made aware of what was happening in this facility, in the 1970s and 80s there was like a huge decline in the patients coming into the institution and even more leaving. There was a nationwide trend in the US to have places like this shut down. And in the hospital after the 50s, they weren't there weren't many treatments that were being offered, so the only method would be medications and patients can take their own medications at home. They don't need to be in a facility. Or have people watch them taking their medication. Unless it's like a specific case. There's things like that happening now in psych wards and hospitals. But it's not like this. There's just people who won't take their own medication without having some assistance. So the hospital began to have more fulfilling activities for the patients in the mid-50s. Like They had their own softball team. They had a poetry class. Uh, There were more improvements. And they were trying to make it a better hospital. Um, They had an alcohol treatment unit that was created and a place for community care. In the 70s and 80s, staff was being paid more, they were given a livable wage, and patients had more rights. The hospital began to prepare to close its doors, and in the 1990s, patients were to be transferred to community life in a new hospital. In 1992, another patient died by suicide. In that same year, a patient was murdered. One of the patients who had died by suicide during this time was a man named Brian Scott B and he had obviously not been looked after properly because nobody knew where he'd gone and he had been decomposing for eight days. Nobody knew. The murder that was done during this time, they suspect that that same person had murdered multiple other patients during this time and a few years prior to this. The hospital underwent a new administration change, and just after this happened, a patient who had been released threw acid into the face of a police officer, and the hospital was sued for this. Two years later, in 1994, the asylum closed its doors to patients for good, and the building stayed empty for years. I just realized, this was a year after I was born. A year after I was born this? This asylum closed its doors like it was open like the place that did lobotomies on people was still open for a year after i was born that's that's crazy that didn't even dawn on me until now wow i want another beer should i get one maybe i will but it did stay empty for years but that was until august of 2007 the hospital was auctioned off and purchased by joe jordan for 1.5 million dollars and it is now open for guided tours to understand the history of the asylum, and you can even take paranormal tours to see the spookier side of things, which brings us to the spooky portion of this podcast. I'm actually kind of scared to do this, this portion of the podcast right now, because my brother, um, wasn't home, and I heard, like, tapping like a in his bedroom and like a creaking on the ground like someone had stepped in there and I was like super scared and he's not home and no one else heard it in the house so hopefully I can get through this without looking behind me and being like super scared anyways this brings us to the spooky portion of the podcast there have been multiple accounts of hauntings or like paranormal sightings on the grounds and in these hallways Over the years, as people died, they were buried on the grounds and they had a cemetery on the grounds and today there is said to be over 2,000 people buried there. These bodies belong to not only the patients but the hospital staff as well as soldiers from the Civil War. As we talked about before, the people who lived here were violent and they would rape and murder other patients. Those same murderers share the space with the people who fell victim to their violent actions. So, in the afterlife, those victims are sharing space with these violent people, if you believe in that kind of thing. The most well-known ghost was a little girl named Lily. There are two stories about Lily and how she came to live in the asylum. People either believe that she was born while she was in the hospital, either her mother was a patient at the hospital, or her parents dropped her off. And she also died in the asylum from pneumonia. It's believed that she was about nine years old at the time of her death. And her soul still lives in the asylum. She can be seen wearing a white dress, sitting alone in a room. Lily, she likes to play with the guests. As guests walk along the first floor, they can feel Lily holding their hands and tugging on their clothes. You can hear her giggles near her bedroom on the first level and if you happen to have candy on you she'll steal it away from you and if she wants to keep playing with you balls will roll across the ground or toys will move on their own staff and visitors have witnessed other ghosts that move along the hallways at night and can even see shadowy figures lurking at all hours of the day with this particular ghost A doctor who has been part of the staff of the hospital says that the ghost had followed them home and is still bothering them to this day. Ghosts can be felt and seen spying on you from different places around the grounds. There's even accounts of balls of light moving in the hallways. Okay, I'm getting super freaked out. I feel like there's someone like touching me. (laughs) Okay, we'll just keep going. In the ward, where we had mentioned a violent stabbing, there were two other suicides from hangings and in those specific rooms where all of them occurred, shadows and ghosts can be seen. EVPs have even been used in the room, which is not technically backed by science, but I'm here for it. An EVP is an electronic voice phenomena where sounds are found on the recording and are interpreted as spirit voices. The recordings can be intentionally or unintentionally recorded. More than once, a voice was captured on the EVP in this room. This voice was telling visitors, Get out. It has been heard as both a scream and a whisper. People have said that they can feel a slight tugging. Ugh, I don't like this. Okay. People have said that they feel a slight tugging at the bottom of their pants Like something is trying to like get their attention from the ground. They think it's the stabbed victim using his last bit of strength to ask for help. There's another ghost named Ruth who wanders in the oldest part of the hospital. And for unknown reasons, she will throw items at unsuspecting visitors. They're usually men. People think that she doesn't like men. She'll push them against walls along the first floor. And you can even hear whistling sounds coming as they're moving along the hallways where she has been felt before now this is the worst one and i've already looked behind me on the ground because it freaks me the hell out i think one of the creepiest things that have happened to people here i probably get freaked out because of movies i've seen but on the fourth floor people have seen something that looks like a black shadowy mass and there's also this weird ghost that people call the creeper and this creeper crawls along the floor. Yeah. Oh my god, did you hear that? Holy shit. Yeah, so there's also noises coming from the fourth floor that sounds like hands banging against the pipes on that same floor. And in the room where the doctors would do electroshock therapy, different noises can be heard coming from that room. Noises like a throaty moan banging against the walls, doors slamming closed Weird, like deep breathing and loud laughing that comes from the empty room. I'm probably not going to sleep tonight, you guys. Yeah, so that's the history of the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, I'm really sorry for having such a delay in posting the newest episode. I really hope that I haven't lost too many of you. I really do love doing this. There's seriously so much that goes into this that like I got so scattered brained about it. I just didn't know what to do or where to begin. But yeah, I have this tendency of like trying to make sure everything's perfect, um, even though it's not, because if not, I'll hate it. And I need to just like let that mentality go, you know, because it's not helping me and it's not helping the podcast because I do try my best and I need to learn to let that be enough. But anyways, I'm spilling too much. So yeah, I just wanted to say thank you and thank you so much for being an amazing listener. Um, If you did make it this far in the episode and you enjoyed the episode, I am doing a giveaway for stickers as a thank you. I had um, our logo printed and I'm obsessed, you guys. So the profile picture that you see on social media, that like sticker, I mean not sticker, that circle, I got it printed as a sticker. So if you would like one and you like the podcast, the first five people to email me at a nightmare on their street at gmail.com with your name and mailing address i will get that sent to you that's a nightmare on their street they're like t-h-e-i-r a nightmare on their street at gmail.com this will be ongoing maybe until november 5th yeah this will be ongoing until november 5th of 2021 so make sure you send me your emails and your name as soon as you hear this Um, so I can get you your sticker if you'd like to follow our social media accounts Instagram is a nightmare on their street Twitter is podcast. and again our email is a nightmare on their street at gmail.com and if you'd like to I would really appreciate it Apple podcast reviews are so very helpful to me in the podcast Um, but yeah thank you so much for listening I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'll talk to you very soon